Not a Hoax, Not a Dream, the podcast about comic book characters who just don't quit. You can try to write them off, but they'll just get written back in. I'm your host, Ben Rathbone, and tonight I'm recording alone in a dark, shadowy alley. It's currently February right now, and while it's starting to get a little warmer, we're not through winter yet. It's cold, the day's short, and the night's long. And you know what that means. It's vampire season. Luckily, there is one man who can protect us against the undying legions. His name is Blade, also known as Eric Brooks. And when it comes to vampires, he's a one-man army. These days, in the comics, he's an Avenger alongside Captain America and team. But he got his start with vamps, and it will always be in his bones. Let's go back and look at a Blade story wrapped up in death and rebirth. I mean, if one ignores the fact that you appear to be dead, it's almost peaceful. Are we seriously fucking dead? Vampires have always been around in comic books. Just four issues after his first appearance in Detective Comics number 27, Batman encounters the creatures of the night in a story appropriately named Batman vs. the Vampire. He kills them with silver bullets, because even then... Batman was always prepared. The early 50s is where they really saw their day, or, uh, night, as horror comics ruled the newsstand, capturing the imaginations of young readers in a way that increasingly derivative superhero titles no longer were. Vampires were constantly lurking on the printed page, hanging out with all kinds of other ghouls and monsters of the night. But the reign of the creatures was halted by the Comics Code Authority in 1954, which placed a ban on all kinds of content regularly featured in comic books of the day like extreme violence, sex, and drug use. Horror publisher EC Comics was the biggest offender and biggest target in the movement to purify the minds of the youth, which led to some super specific rules. No horror or terror in a title, no walking dead, no werewolves, and no vampires. Not a one. The no vampire rule stayed in effect until 1971, when the CCA revised what was forbidden. Vampires were okay now, but only if they were classic vampires, like Bram Stoker's Dracula. Marvel Comics was like, cool, cool. But what about a sci-fi vampire who fights Spider-Man? They create Morbius, the living vampire, and the CCA doesn't really have anything to say about it. Then, in 1972, Marvel releases a series that strictly adheres to the new guidelines, called The Tomb of Dracula. The main character is Dracula, like the Dracula, and it follows a cast of other characters too, usually people trying to kill Dracula because he's Dracula. Ten issues in, and a new character joins the cast, challenging Drac himself on the cover, who has scooped up an unconscious lady in his pale arms. Drop that girl, Dracula, or this wooden knife will finish you off. Forever. Maybe you're hot stuff back in Transylvania, but nobody messes around with Blade, the Vampire Slayer. You may think of Blade as a technologically decked-out Wesley Snipes cutting vamps in half with a katana, or possibly Mahershala Ali if you're listening to this in the future, but the Blade from the 70s had hair closer to an afro than a fade, and while he wore a bandolier of knives under his long jacket, he didn't sport anywhere near the arsenal he has these days. Oh, also, turns out the comic version is British, or at least grew up in West End London. 
Additionally, they hadn't quite worked out the Daywalker aspect of his power set in Origins, though it was established pretty early on that he's immune to Dracula's bite due to his mom being feasted upon by a vamp during labor. Going back to the Wesley Snipes movies, do you remember Abraham Whistler, played by Chris Christopherson? Old grizzled dude that trained Blade in the art of shiny guns, sharp things, and weaponized garlic? Yeah, well in the comics, Blade had a different mentor by the name of Jamal Afari. He's the framework for our episode, because while Blade never died and came back, as far as I know, Afari did. It's a tale as old as time, a chosen hero destined to fight evil, a wise sage who can show him the way. The master dies to define the hero's purpose. Perhaps instead, the master is corrupted and the student must defeat him. Or, in the story we have today, both. It first appeared in 1975 in Marvel Preview, number 3, Blade, the Vampire Slayer. A four-part story written by Chris Claremont and drawn by Tony DiZaniga and Rico Rival. A woman runs through the streets of London, chased by a macrobear creature of the night. Just as the monster is about to descend on his victim, Blade arrives on the scene, ready to do what he does best. And if there's anything Chris Claremont's dialogue is good for, it's at describing what a character does best. Wolverine? Best at what he does, and what he does isn't very nice. Blade? Best at what he does, too. But what he does is a lot less vague and euphemistic. You guessed it, he kills vampires, and that's what he intends to do now. It won't be easy, though, because Blade's newest mark isn't your run-of-the-mill vamp. He proclaims to have trained with the best fencing masters in Europe, and to have outsorted them all. He lends weight to the boast by unleashing a barrage of thrusts with his rapier. The vampire manages to bring Blade to the ground with an expert feint, but fails to deliver the finishing blow. Blade quickly recovers himself, and drives a wooden dagger through the heart of the fiend, killing it. His work for the night done, Blade calls in an ambulance for the would-be victim, and, more reluctantly, the police, who want to bring him in for questioning. Turns out this is pretty routine. Blade's been killing vampires in London for a while now, and every time he does, the police bring him in for questioning. Then they find out it's a vampire, so they let him go. Vampires, you see, are legally dead, so it's not a crime to kill someone who's dead. I wonder if there had to be precedent set to establish that? You know, something that lawyers specializing in vampire law would have to memorize? London versus Blade, something like that. Anyway... This case is very much the same as those others, as Chief Inspector Thomas of New Scotland Yard attends a autopsy where it's confirmed that the corpse is a vampire. Waiting outside the morgue is the vampire's father, livid over the death of his son, seeking justice. Inspector Thomas informs him there will be no charge, as his son died seven months ago. This makes the old man angrier. You see, he'd seen his son just last night. He sees him many nights when he comes to visit. Thomas apologizes, but says no more, and goes from one argument to another as he confronts Blade. Thomas doesn't like Blade's attitude, Blade doesn't like Thomas, and when the argument gets heated, Blade gut-punches the inspector and storms off. Fellow cop Kate Frazier enters the room and asks the chief if they should hold Blade, but Thomas says no. He's just worried about him. Sooner or later, his luck will run out, and he'll make a mistake. Blade heads to the jazz club, Slow Boys, to blow off some steam. He has no way of knowing that the Legion of the Damned, essentially an elite vampire conglomerate, has kidnapped his lady friend, Saffron. Well, no way of knowing except the striking woman who's just entered the club to tell him. 
Marguerite is the aristocratic lady, and she tells Blade that Saffron has been captured by Vierkin, a big-shot vampire Blade's fought in the past, and is demanding Blade trade his life or sacrifice hers. Blade figures he has no choice. Just in case there's an option C, though, Blade brings a torso full of knives under his coat, and they come in handy when the vampires betray the deal by ambushing Blade immediately. Blade stabs his way through the horde, yelling for Vierkin to show himself. As he kills the last vamp minion, our hero spots Vierkin duck behind the cover of fog. The vampire hunter tosses a dagger directly where he saw the villain move to, but the scream he hears is not what he expected. It's shrill, high-pitched, young. As Blade approaches, he's horrified to see that his weapon found the heart not of a vampire, but of a 12-year-old girl. As his mind reels from the shock and guilt, Blade hears sirens coming his way. He knows he should pay for what he's just done, but he can't turn himself in yet, not while the vampires still have saffron. So he escapes into the night. Chief Inspector Thomas is among the officers arriving at the scene. He's joined by Kate, who turns out isn't just your standard grass-type detective, or even fire-type. No, Kate is a psychic-type. Specifically, she's gifted with the ability of psychometric reading, meaning she can perceive a person or object's history through touch. She delves into the past and discovers that it was Vierkin who stabbed the girl, before planting the corpse in order to frame Blade. Phew, had me worried there. Unfortunately, while vampire murder might hold precedent in British law, psychic Huzawatsit does not, so our hero isn't off the hook as far as the courts are concerned. To make matters worse, there's a spy listening in. The narration introduces us to Constable Lawson. He's a good husband and father, with an unblemished 11-year record on the force. He also fell victim to a tall man in an opera cape two years ago, and has by request worked night duty ever since. After hearing Kate's revelation, Lawson steps to a payphone to contact the lady, Marguerite. The lady takes the call and explains the situation to Vierkin, who's with her. Marguerite tells her accomplice to take care of the detective before she can find hard evidence to prove Blade's innocence. They're not the only ones in the spy game, though. No, Blade himself, here on the trail of Saffron, listens in from his hiding spot, though it's unclear whether he hears the piece about Kate discovering Vierkin stabbed the girl. So, Vierkin has framed Blade, who's now going to follow Vierkin, who's trying to kill Kate, who's trying to exonerate Blade. The tables haven't turned yet, but when they do, guaranteed everyone will be dizzy. On the other side of town, Kate's investigation has taken her to the club named Ponce's, on a hot tip. The hot tip turns out to be a trap, and Ponce himself turns out to be a vampire. Kate barely escapes Ponce's clutches by brandishing a cross, but waiting outside is Vierkin with a cadre of ambushing bloodsuckers. Also waiting on a rooftop above is Blade. Since this is the end of part two of the story, Blade wonders aloud whether he should save the cop, since she would just arrest him afterwards. Moral quandaries are only for cliffhangers in comics, though, so by the time part three starts, he's already leapt off the roof and started slaying vampires. He slices and dices a path for him and Kate to escape, and since it's near enough to dawn, Vierkin dares not follow. Marguerite shows up, however, and tells them they better suck it up and just fucking do it. If they don't, they'll have to face the wrath of him, the Master, whose name is not revealed, but almost certainly rhymes with Scott Bakula. They all turn into bats and give chase. The pursuit takes everyone into the subway. 
Kate electrifies a vamp on the tracks while Blade kicks his opponent into an oncoming train, while barely avoiding it himself. They make it to the surface world again alive, as dawn turns the day, but Kate is injured from the underground battle. Blade takes her to Slow Boys, where his friend can oversee patching the detective up. Kate reveals that she thinks Blade is innocent, but Blade insists that he'll turn himself in. Look, Inspector, I don't want any trouble. I'll give myself up. All I ask is enough time to get Saffron free of those lousy bloodsuckers. Get her free, or do what I have to to make sure she stays... dead. There's so much hate in you, Blade. Sometimes it seems almost... alive. Why? Why so much fury? So much hate? Blade tells her. His story starts with his birth, when a vampire killed his mother while she was in labor. He grew up at a brothel in Soho run by a woman named Lady Vanity, and didn't know what to think about the story of what happened to his mom. Not until one cold, wet day in December, when he was nine years old, and he came across an old guy getting attacked by creatures of the night. Our young hero rushed in to help the man, only to find he didn't need it. The codger slayed his assailants with a silver sword cane. Blade found out the man was named Jamal Afari, a skilled trumpeter who could hold his own against the finest jazz players who ever lived. The night they met wasn't the first time Afari had run into the undead. Jamal and vampires had a long history. He'd even fought Dracula and lived to tell the tale. But these battles left a psychological toll. Afari became addicted to drugs and was in and out of the hospital for this disease. But he managed to kick the poison and move into vanities, becoming a father to Blade. He taught the boy everything he knew about both jazz and the undead. Blade wasn't so sure what to believe about the latter until years later when Jamal went missing. People assumed the horn player had gone back to his unhealthy habits, but when Blade finally found him, it was a different condition that afflicted the musician. Afari told Blade to stay away, for his own good, but when Blade didn't listen, his mentor could resist no longer. Jamal lunged at Blade, to try and feast on his adopted son's blood. It was Dracula, he explained, looming over his prodigy. Dracula found him at last. He'd thought the vampire forgot about him after all these years, but vampires never forget. Blade almost met his end that night, at the fangs of the man who raised him, but a pair of silver candlesticks saved his life, as he formed them into a cross to set Afari ablaze with holy energy. He was the only father I'd ever had, lady, and I killed him. But Dracula had killed him first, just like that bearded vamp had killed my mum. That night I swore to get him both, no matter how long it took, no matter what it cost. Vampires killed my mum, they killed Jamal, Lady Vanity, now they got Saffron. I keep trying to stop him, and each time, all things seem to do is get worse. Kate empathizes with Blade and tells him not to lose hope. She has a plan, one that if they can pull it off will cripple the Legion of the Damned. First part of that plan is to dress up like real estate agents to get into Lady Marguerite's townhouse and beat up her racist servants. Next step is to find Saffron tied up in a room. One big problem, though, as Saffron turns around, she has the fangs of a vampire. Memories of how he met Saffron flash through Blade's mind. He remembers playing his horn at Slow Boys and seeing a beautiful woman show up to watch him every night. He remembers a jerk named Ponce showing up and harassing the lady and having to show the man the door. He remembers their first night out and their first kiss. 
but none of these memories stop him from doing what he needs to do. He goes to stab Saffron through the heart, until Kate stops him. She opens the window blinds, letting the sun in, and when the light doesn't burn Saffron, Blade has no idea what's happening. Kate explains. The vampires infected the woman, but not enough to completely turn her. A few blood transfusions later, and she'll be right as rain. Man, first vampire law, now vampire medicine. London sure is a magical place. Anyway, she calls Saffron an ambulance. Okay, so that's fine. But what isn't fine is what the duo finds in some documents lying around in the room. Turns out the Legion of the Damned is working on a serum that will allow all vampires to survive during the daytime hours as well as night. Shit. Law? Medicine? Now fucking vampire science? Speaking of day and night, it's starting to look pretty dark out right now. Also, is that a bunch of bats flying at the window? The vampires burst into the room, and Blade and Kate barely manage to escape to their car. The vampire bats give chase, and when one of the creatures manages to crash into the front window shield, the vehicle swerves off a cliff into the water. The bats save Kate, knock her unconscious, and bring her to the Legion's secret vampire castle base. The Lady Marguerite wanted her alive to interrogate. Blade shows up to the castle, finds the lab where the vampire scientists are going to cure daylight-itis for good, and is confronted by Vierkin, who is absolutely astonished that the story's main protagonist could survive falling to his death off-panel. Blade spears the baddie through the chest and blows the lab up with dynamite. Then he shows up with a shotgun pointed directly at Marguerite, who, while an asshole, is not a vampire. So Kate tells him not to kill her, so he isn't guilty of killing a human, because, oh yeah, she found definitive proof that Blade didn't kill the girl. Vierkin taped the actual murder, in case he needed to implicate Marguerite, who he hated, and Kate found the video cassette. Alright, looks like that just about wraps everything up. Oh, but one last thing. Marguerite is overcome by some unseen force, possessed by the powerful vampire she calls Master. Blade! Ha 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 ha! You have won, human! Enjoy your victory while you may! Ha 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 ha! But you have only won a battle, Blade! You have not won the war! Ha 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 ha! We will meet again, human, and on that day, one of us will die! Ha 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 ha! You can bet on it, Drac baby. You can bet on it. That was pretty cool. From what I can tell, and I did absolutely no research on this part, Marvel Preview was some kind of anthology of would-be comic books. They're black and white, that's why I didn't credit a colorist. So maybe these were slated to run in a series, but just never made it to print. Uh, I don't know. Like I say, I I didn't look it up or anything. Would have been nice to see it in color, though. The story is tight, and the art is moody and stylistic to match. Definitely recommend giving it a read if you ever get the chance. Alright, we're going to skip forward into a new millennium from 1975 to 2007. Vampires never really go away. The horde ebbs and flows, sometimes rapidly increasing in number, other times being forced back into hiding, cowering in dark places, desperate for a meal. 
At one point, Doctor Strange kills them all, but then they all come back. If you're interested in that, I'll probably do a bonus episode on it next week. Blade never stops fighting them. As different appearances flesh out his story, it turns out he's a dampier, a being with all the strengths of a vampire but none of the weaknesses. Or, as the movies say, the Daywalker. Blade's newest case may challenge him like never before. Blade, Volume 4, Issues 10 through 12. Written by Mark Guggenheim. Drawn and inked by Howard Chaikin. Colored by Edgar Delgado. The synopsis in issue number 10 kind of sets up what's been going on better than I could, so I'm going to lift it. Here goes. Since his youth, Eric has battled, becoming a master of weaponry and taking the name Blade. His quest to rid the world of vampires has led him into conflict with Spider-Man, Vampire Shield agents, and Wolverine. It's been a busy year. Recently, Blade was forced to chew off his own hand in order to escape captured by Lucas Cross, a powerful man claiming to be Blade's own father and the head of the mysterious Order of Tirana. In an effort to unlock the mysteries swirling about him, Blade traveled back to his native England, where he obtained a gun hand, courtesy of his shield connections, and learned more about the Order of Tirana from British superhero Union Jack. Now, more determined than ever, Blade is back in the USA, on the trail of his father, and the mysterious prophecy Cross is intent on fulfilling. Okay, cool. One thing left out of that, though. Uh, At some point, Blade went back in time to save Dr. Doom's mom from vampires, and while in the past, he frees his dad from a jail cell. Doom gave him a magic potion as thanks. Comics. Blade confronts Lucas Cross at an event in Washington, D.C. Cross asks if he's accepted their Darth Vader-Luke Skywalker relationship yet, but the family reunion is spoiled when Blade finds out Lucas is a vampire. Dad convinces son not to commit patricide, but Blade still isn't convinced on whether to trust the Order of Tirana and help fulfill this prophecy they keep talking about. He heads off for more answers. The search eventually takes him to Spider-Man, who is stopping some C-list supervillain from destroying a building. You know, like every Thursday night. Blade helps out and then is like, Hey, remember when I saw you last time when you were almost a vampire and then I shot you in the knees? Spider-Man definitely remembers the knees part. Yeah, well, what happened right before that? Anything suspicious? Spider-Man is like, yeah, i just seen Dracula, who was working with his other mysteriously cloaked fellow vampire. The two had just uncovered this suspicious-looking magic amulet. Blade asks Spidey if he got a look at the cloaked vampire's face, but Spider-Man says he can do one better. He heard his name. Upon hearing Spider-Man speak the identification, memories of a different time flash through Blade's mind. Images of a jazz club, of an old horn player teaching him the ropes, of a man like a father to him turned into an evil creature of the night he was forced to kill. Are you... are you sure? Blade asks. Yeah, Spider-Man says. I heard Drax say it, plain as day. The guy was called Jamal Afari. Why? You know him? Turns out Dracula resurrected the jazz man with something called the Espil Shade. After hearing the name of his mentor, Blade spends months searching the globe for Afari until Lucas Cross gets tired of waiting around and captures his son by force so they can head off to Transylvania and fulfill the prophecy. Hannibal King, vampire detective and sometimes ally to Blade, comes along for the ride. When they get there, the ambiance of the scene isn't quite as dramatic as desired, as Dracula's castle is now a tourist trap. 
but they push through it. Lucas Cross takes stock of inventory. Salted Earth? Check. Son who freed me before he was born? Check. Amulet that grants immortal life? Check. Vlad's remains uh, in the form of a nail in a glass tube? Check. Okay, uh, we're good to go. This is going to be great, son. Once you destroy the amulet and set Vlad's remains on the ground, all vampires everywhere will get their souls back. So, let's get to it. Blade thinks about it, but says no. He remembers back to a different time, when he learned about vampires' weaknesses from a group of five fellow slayers in a faraway place. Holy water. Sunlight. Garlic. Silver. Wood through the heart. With a soul, a man has no special weakness to these things. But without it. Blade says as much to Cross. He doesn't care about losing immortality, but granting vampires invulnerability? Not a chance. Lucas says, fine, if you won't do it for your biological father, maybe you will for your adoptive one, and calls out his goons, who have Jamal Afari restrained. Destroy the amulet, or they stake the man. Blade gets ready to fight, and looks over to Hannibal for backup, but turns out Hannibal was kind of looking forward to the idea of having a soul, and starts fighting Blade instead. The two brawl it out, with Blade leaving the vamp dead on the ground. He beats up all of Cross's goons next. Then, Dracula shows up, in a form-fitting red leather bodysuit. He impales Blade through the shoulder with a sword. He then fills in some of the info missing from the plot so far, basically that he'd been working on this prophecy for a lot longer than the Order of Tirana, and that he needed to resurrect Jamal because the man had knowledge on the location of the amulet. Drac thought Jamal was under his control, as these things tend to go, but really Afari was sending him on a wild goose chase. Dracula destroys the amulet, and him and Cross both yell at Blade to set the remains on the ground. Dracula threatens to kill him if he doesn't, but that doesn't work, so Drac goes and starts beating up Jamal Afari instead. Blade goes to stop him, but Cross, currently holding the remains in a glass tube, interferes. Blade bumps up against his dad, causing the tube to fling out of Cross's hands, dropping to the ground. The prophecy has been fulfilled. But the results are unexpected. Turns out this doesn't give vamps their souls back. Instead, it brings the vamps back to life. All the vamps who have ever been killed come back to life. That includes all the bloodsuckers Blade has ever killed, too. Every damn one of them. Oh, and Hannibal, too. He's back. Dracula escapes. Blade lets Cross go to stew with his guilt. And... Oh, remember that potion from Doctor Doom? Yeah, what it does is, if drunk, it would cure Blade of his thirst for blood and bloodlust for vampires. Blade gives it to Hannibal to cure him of his bloodthirst. What about Blade? Well, he's going to need at least one portion of what the potion would have removed, the bloodlust for vampires. With all the vamps back on the board, Blade is going to need all the bloodlust he can get. That was a lot of fun, gotta say. My only critique here is that Jamal Afari never says anything. Like, not a word, which seems like a real missed opportunity. I'd love to have seen a denouement where him and Blade have a heart-to-heart. One last imparting of wisdom, maybe one last song on his trumpet, you know, whatever. And then Blade sends his father figure off to peace. Instead, there's no real closure at all. 
uh, Fari's entry on the Marvel fandom wiki page ends with this story, too. So who knows what happened? Oh, well. All right. And that's going to wrap things up for this episode of Not a Hoax, Not a Dream. Thanks for listening. If I can ask a favor of you, if you're listening to this on a platform like Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, anything really, and you can follow and give a good rating, please do. Following on a platform will help get it out there. You can always tell people about it too. Next week will be an episode on how Doctor Strange killed all the vampires, and the week after, stay tuned for an episode on Green Lantern. Which Green Lantern, you ask? Well, you'll have to find out. Until then... See you later.